Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Michael C. Munger. He's the Director of Undergraduate Studies in the Department of Political Science. Um, He's at Duke University. We're going to be talking about uh, some economics, some politics, and what's to come in the future here. So, Mike, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? It's a pleasure. I'm doing well. I hope you are. Yeah, I'm fine. So what's what's the focus of your current research and studies? What are you working on right now? Well, I'm interested in, I started out being interested in the sharing economy, and I thought that the value proposition was the commodification of excess capacity, because it seemed like if I have a car in a few minutes and you need a ride, and we have trouble finding each other, negotiating a price, trusting each other, then an app like Uber could help facilitate that transaction. But I've come to realize that there's probably something quite a bit larger than that. And I've, for want of a better name, called it platforms. And there's a lot of people that talk about the platform economy. I've tried to give that a particular definition. Platforms are some sort of software or setting that provide you with a solution to the problems of triangulation, finding each other, transfer, delivering the service and making the payment, and trust, that is, believing that I, you'll actually do what you promised to do and that you won't steal anything from me. So any, any system that solves those three problems is a platform. And interestingly, for example, the Sears catalog in the 19th century was a platform. It was a way of people finding products. In fact, the Sears catalog was a kind of mall. It was just in a book, all these different products, many of them not owned or sold by Sears, you could purchase, you could get them delivered. Sears had a payment system. For later, for a while when I was young, we had physical malls, that is these giant buildings that had a bunch of individual stores in them, and the stores would come and go, but overall there was security and there were a lot of people that would visit. Now we have virtual malls like Amazon, but we also have other kinds of platforms like Wikipedia. There are things that aren't even a market setting where people can show up, they can write different uh, Wikipedia entries, and you have someone who's in charge of making sure that they work. So the, what, I'm, what I'm interested in, that was a long answer to your question, what I'm interested in is new forms of cooperation and mm-hmm. the way that the problem of choosing consensus-generating mechanisms within software can help us accomplish those goals. Well, yeah, it sounds like a platform, a marketplace, even a media, possibly. The media yeah. being a catalog, let's say, is uh, they're all similar, platform, yeah. marketplace. And that was the thing, was, was finding the, the unifying concept, and I think platforms is it. And that's not original to me, as you know. It just I've come to recognize something that other people have known for a while. Well, I mean, I guess we've been familiar with uh, de-platforming, the ability of the platform to to set the rules and kick you off when it feels like it. Sure. So so you know about this phenomenon. It's been around a long time. 
what do you want to figure out about platforms in today's age? The politics of them, the utility of them. I mean, what's what's important to you? Well, until fairly recently, most of us thought that we needed jobs because we needed money so that we could go buy stuff and own it and then pay to store it. And platforms allow us to share things in way that reduce our footprint on the environment, on the world, and make much more efficient use of the stuff that we already have. It also changes the nature of sharing. In economics, there's a concept called public goods, and economists have more or less agreed that markets are not very good at providing public goods. So think of an example of what most people think of as a public good, and that is roads. Well, are roads public goods? Public goods have the property that they are non-rival in consumption. That means that if I use it, you can't uh, for a private good. So the for it be non-rival, it means we can share it. And it has to be non-excludable. That is, it's hard for markets to charge a price. Roads may once have been like that, but they really aren't any longer because if I have GPS on my phone and you have some detectors in the road that will be able to say, all right, we have, we have seen that you have traveled over this space, something like markets could probably operate pretty well and charge for roads. But there's other systems using smart contracts. So I, I think the, the, the way that public goods are going to move, including like the local public works department, if you live in a small community, you live in a neighborhood in a large city, you have a bunch of people that collect the garbage, that work on fire protection, police protection, that can be revolutionized with smart contracts. So instead of having this provided by the state, it can be provided cooperatively in a way that also doesn't involve markets. So it's breaking down the sort of traditional false dichotomy between market systems and government systems and enabling ways of just having people cooperate in ways that are actually probably hard for me to imagine. So do you see a transformation of some of these platforms, uh, you know, for better use or what's, what's your thoughts? Well, so imagine that you live in a small town and there's some stuff that needs to be done. So the, there's a sink at the school that needs to be fixed. The, the yard, the lawn needs to be mowed at the park and some repair work needs to be done on the air conditioning at the town hall. Normally we would have a person who is in charge of doing that and that's the public works guy. Uh, maybe there's some potholes that need to be fixed also. So we have to have a system for financing that, for carrying it out and also for establishing a priority, the order in which those jobs will be worked on. What I think is interesting is that if we have a system of smart contracts, we can solve what economists call the collective action problem. The collective action problem and the reason why we have public works departments is I'm worried if I make a contribution and say, all right, I will pay to get the the yard mowed at the park, nobody else will contribute. They'll all try to free ride. But imagine that we had an app that combined three sorts of features. One is a wedding registry. That At a wedding registry, it's a way of solving the problem of transactions costs. So if a new couple's getting married, they don't want to get three espresso makers and no blenders. So there's a list of things that they want, and you can sign up for one of them. 
And then the second part of this software would be something like Pokemon Go, where it's an augmented reality system. I look around and I can see a grid. And on that grid, there's a list of things, and this is from the wedding registry, that of stuff that needs to be done. But if you, Richard, were to sign up for the, the park, it would say, uh, Richard has agreed to donate $50 to getting the park mode because you want to go and uh, play a soccer game there tomorrow. So that's the high priority for you. The third thing would be a smart contract that keeps your $50 in escrow. That is, you can't take it back. You can't cheat, but <clears throat> it doesn't actually get paid until I commit to paying for the fixing the sink at the town hall and somebody else agrees to fix the air conditioning at the school. So that means that we can solve the collective action problem just using software that monitors our commitment, but we can also elicit information about the order in which these things can be done because my money is now going to go to the specific thing that I care about. We no longer in our small town, we don't even have a public works department. What we have is a cooperative system that is monitored by software. So it's as if we've created an expert system that helps us run the city much more efficiently, a lot more cheaply, but the, the, the three jobs that I just talked about, those are all private contracts. That's where the price comes from. So it's a kind of hybrid system. Um, Estonia has done some, the country of Estonia has done some experiments with this at the local level. And frankly, it hasn't worked very well so far. But I, I think that what it's- What do you mean? This, what, what happened? What happened? Well, they, they, had, they had trouble monitoring and they, they had trouble with getting people to participate uh, because it just seemed too odd. And the, remember, the suppose you don't participate, there has to be some default, and that means you would just pay taxes the normal way. So the as it stands, the the there there is no working model of this system for a while there was hope that that Estonia was going to be able to be, be an existence proof and i i think it still may be but uh the i've given this talk a couple of places and people say well they tried that in Estonia and it didn't work well, for simple things i don't see why it couldn't be proven concept if yeah yeah i i it, you know, it, it, uh, it's straightforward you're you're right it should be something for simple things like local government we should be able to do it i also would say in 1913 even, even, for, even for simple things like i don't know improving the local park each of the people that live in the area contributes um because of let's say their home ownership they own a small fraction of the park you know but it's collective use those payments are escrowed by let's say a blockchain system whatever it is and then once it reaches critical mass, the whole thing gets funded. Yep. And I don't understand for, for things like that, this should work. This shouldn't. And it 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 it, it, it it totally does for single items like that. Um, and an example here in North Carolina, we don't have many snow plows, but there's a, there's an app called Plows and Mows where in the winter after a snowstorm, if a group of us want to get together and each say, I'll pay $30 towards having my road plowed. If you get 10 people, that's 300 bucks. It doesn't take much. For 300 bucks, you can get somebody with a plow to come do that. Yes, it's true. Some of the other people in the neighborhood free ride, but there absolutely is already proof of concept. So long as you just have it on single things like we'll all work, cooperate for the park, because it's in a way, it's like a GoFundMe. The, the, we, we already understand how this works. We raise money for it and nobody spends the money unless you raise enough for the whole thing to get done. The, what hasn't worked yet is to have all 
the activities for an entire city be done this way. But I'm optimistic that it will. And I actually think it'll make people feel much more like they're participating in their local community. So I, I think it holds really great promise. Yeah, but wouldn't a city be more likely to want to test it first on individual small things? Yeah. And in doing so, you know it works, and that would embolden people to do it on more and more things. I mean, just because I live in City A doesn't mean everything has to be this way. There could be certain things that are and certain that are not, and that's okay. And as long as, you know, 20% of the local government is systematized this way, that's a benefit. And there would be learnings as we go along for future, you know, in increasing it to 50%, 80%, maybe 100%. I'm, tr- I'm trying not to be an enthusiast. I, I think it clearly works. I have found that people object. Well, are there any examples of this working for an entire city? Until there are, I won't believe it. Okay, fair enough that w- we'll see. But you could implement this just on a few areas and still get much better information and more efficient local government. And I agree with you that that should be enough. Um, what about laws that uh, get in the way of doing this? You know, I know that people, let's, let's say they can't share electricity and there's certain things they can't do. Do you think the current legislative framework holds us back as well? Well, there are two issues. One is the power of, you could call it unions, but in some ways it's just the political power of local government. There's a lot of people who work for these agencies who depend on it for their job. And that kind of gets back to the other point that I was making. We're used to thinking of having a job and then using that money to buy stuff and store it. You might not need a job. John Maynard Keynes famously said he thought that if productivity was high enough, we probably could have a two-day work week. And if we were to share things, we actually would have even more than we have now. So I have a lawnmower. I'm embarrassed to admit I have a riding lawnmower. I only have an acre of land, but I have a riding lawnmower for my fat butt to ride around when I mow the lawn. And my neighbor also has an acre of land and he has a riding lawnmower. It's pretty remarkable that we can't share. So there, there are apps. There have to be ways where we can share things. The result is likely to reduce everyone's incomes. But since prices are likely to fall more if we're able to share, the effect, if we manage it right, is actually to increase our wealth because our commands over goods and services, because wealth is my ability to use stuff that I value, not necessarily to own stuff and pay for storage. You're in New York and you're in a, an Uber, you're in a three-lane road. It's just that the lane to your left and the lane to your right is completely taken up with empty cars and we call that parking. That's a really dumb way to use scarce space. So I'm, I'm wondering if we can't get to a point where we won't have jobs, but we won't own nearly as much stuff, and the result will be quite a bit, bit more wealth because we'll be making more efficient use of the stuff that we have already. The answer to your question, though, is there are many forms of regulation that are either implicitly or explicitly designed to make sure that those sorts of transformations don't take place. We're desperately trying to lock in the existing distribution, even though it's inefficient and wasteful. So that my new book, which is called The Platforms, Perils and Promise, I, I try to chronicle some of the ways that regulation 
During the Industrial Revolution, the Luddites in England desperately tried to destroy all of the new handlooms, thinking that that would preserve their incomes. Well, all it did was destroy the handlooms and put handlooms in other places. So not even the people that worked there had jobs. So that kind of regulation, metaphorically, is destroying the new technology that actually helps us accomplish many of our shared goals. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Um, again, why does it have to be all one way or another? I mean, are you talking about redistribution of wealth? I mean, in terms of the money someone makes, so if things cost less, that's because, we're, you know, let's say we're allowed to share them and my financial burden is lessened. You know, I would perceive that I'd have more wealth and I'd probably be happier that, oh, okay, look, the sharing is saving me money. So that's great. But I don't know if you do you have to take it all the way to the point where I don't need a job and just things are so cheap that I can live without actually having to have a job. I mean, again, it seems like it's it's going to like one end of the range instead of kind of approaching it slowly or a middle range. That's right. That's that's I think that's the right way to ask the question. What's interesting is that it's regulation that is keeping us there. So, for example, California recently passed Assembly Bill 5 last summer. And Assembly Bill 5 said that in almost all forms of work where you do the same thing more than once, we're going to require that people are full-time employees with benefits rather than being contractor. Now, they were oh, not, not even not even part-time yeah, right. Not even part-time. Really? So the, well, the, oh you have to hire them 30 hours a week with benefits. They have to be employees. They can't be contractors. And so Uber, they were targeting this at Uber. But what happened was many people that, for example, were freelance writers or maybe did a podcast on the side, you couldn't pay them more than once per month or you had to hire them as a full-time employee. And the, the result, guess what? was not hiring them as a full-time employee. It was stop hiring them as contractors. So there was this huge amount of protest. And actually, California, the, the, the woman who sponsored this, thinking that she was helping people, because she, she had this idea, the sharing do, economy. Do you really think she was helping? Or she was just had a vendetta? I think, I think she thought she was helping. I think she was naive enough to be taken in. Wow. Because it was it was organized labor that got her to move in this direction. You can understand why. It's much easier to have powerful labor unions in a setting where there are full time jobs. It's going to be really difficult to organize contractors. So I'm not I'm not blaming people for that. It's just that the immediate response, what's interesting about this, and this is to your point about why not move part way, the immediate response was not people like me whining, oh, well, that's inefficient, you shouldn't do that. The immediate response was a bunch of people who worked as contractors saying, what the hell? What are you doing? Now I yeah, can't- Yeah, I know, I, know, I know several business owners that said, I've gotten rid of all my California contractors, I'm not hiring any yeah. of them ever again. I'm out of there and business is leaving too. So they're just- poisoning their own economy by doing that. And and now there there's consideration in the House of Representatives of making this a federal law. And so the I think what's I am willing to concede that this is not some nefarious scheme where they're lying. I think they honestly believe that they're helping workers. But it's because there's a confusion about the need for permissionless innovation. If you work for the government, if you're elected official, you think we need a process, we need licenses, we need to regulate this, because otherwise people will take advantage. And in fact, permissionless innovation is the, the essence of what 
makes this system work. I can write an app and I can make possible a peer-to-peer -peer transaction far away from me between two people who otherwise would never have met. And so the, the, there's, I'm worried that our misunderstanding of permissionless innovation, of the need for permissionless innovation, is going to hold the U.S. back, even though on pure technology terms, we should be leading this. Yeah, I mean, the regulation, uh, you know, there's always going to be a small percentage of people that get around the system, no matter what it is. And I don't understand why that's not understood. I mean, you know, even the term, the greater good. Yeah. It's not the, the I don't even know what word you'd use, the uh, equally applying to all, the equanimous good. I don't know. But it's the greater good. It's not the greatest good. You will never help everyone in any given system, no matter what. There will always be cheaters. But well, if they're I not the majority and the system functions for 80, 90% of the people, yep. it should be good enough. Uh, the thing that worries me is that we seem to have become obsessed with inequality when the problem we should worry about is poverty. And most systems, when you don't really understand what's producing the wealth and you're saying, yeah, this is not the greatest good, but look at all the improvements that everyday people have in their lives, that system is going to do two things. One is it's going to reduce poverty because it's going to make available to many people benefits like being able to ride in a car. They're, they're too poor to own a car, but they can, for the, if they need to go to the grocery, they don't have to take a bus. And in fact, the North Carolina passed legislation preempting local regulation of Uber. And I talked to one of the sponsors of that. He's a very liberal Democrat from urban Durham. And he said, Uber really helps my poor constituents because they can now, once every two weeks, they can afford to rent briefly using our Uber, a car, go to the grocery, get a lot of stuff, canned goods, stuff that they need, and it's brought right to their door. If they have to use the bus, they have a terrible time with groceries. So we're making available on a broad scale benefits that otherwise would be restricted only to the wealthy. The problem is that systems that are good at solving the problem of poverty are likely to increase inequality because some people are going in selling that are going to hit it big. They're going to come up with the killer app and they're going to make quite a bit of money. If all you do is look at the people who through search, maybe luck, hard work, they come up with these killer apps. It, well, it seems unfair. They shouldn't be making all of that money. You miss the fact that there's this enormous benefit of bringing millions of people up out of poverty. So if you consider the government and all its programs as platforms, and then you put them side by side with you know, commercial free market platforms, is that a different way for you to analyze them? And, and what do you see then how shifts could be made in policy to emulate more commercial platforms that are successful? Well, the permissionless innovation is going to create commercial platforms because people are constantly looking for uh, new applications and new ways of helping people to serve each other. So just facilitating peer-to-peer -peer transactions is probably going to happen in the commercial space. What I think is interesting is the sort of hybrid space of nonprofits or other kinds of cooperation. So, for example, a tool library. <clears throat> Suppose that I enjoy woodworking, but I'm pretty poor. It means that right now I don't have any way of doing woodworking or making furniture. I do have one fairly complicated high-end saw, but that's not enough to do the kind of woodworking that I want. There's uh, some uh, open source software where all I have to do is I can download the software and then maybe 20 of us that each own different kinds of tools, we fill out a questionnaire the software will create 
a website. All we have to do is, is pay to get it hosted. And then the 20 of us can all share those tools. You can schedule the use of the tools on some Saturday. And that means that you have a really high-end woodworking shop because the other people donate the tools to you for that time. Now, we would need some way of making sure that you didn't break it. So these, these tools would need to have some kind of circuitry like a black box in airlines saying, you know, it was damaged, it was dropped, and here's the timestamp. So there's some, some, some problems to be solved. But instead of then me having to pay rental, if we can trust each other, all we have to do is share. One of the problems with rental is if I rent something from you, you're not sure that I'm going to take care of it. But if we share and we have an app that helps us solve that problem, I think there's a variety of ways that groups of people are going spontaneously to emerge and begin to help each other. And it's not really in either a commercial space and certainly not a government space, which is coercive. It's a voluntary private space. So I, I think that's something that a lot of people on the left are actually very excited about. So when I, when I say, they, for some reason that, that escapes me, they're worried about commercial applications. But sharing that doesn't involve the state, sure, let's do more of that. And so I think that's going to be a big growth area for a lot of people that have learned enough computer programming that are interested in open source software and are going to come up with other ways of sharing. Wait, can you can you repeat just the end of that? You said uh, certain groups of people are worried about the commercial aspect of it, but not the sharing. What, yes. What do you mean? Well, commercial means that we're trying to make money. And for reasons that I'm not entirely sure of, because I tend to be in favor of, of commercial applications, the, the idea of profits is objectionable to many people. But the fact is, as Ronald Coase talked about in his 1937 uh, paper on, on firms, markets are expensive to use. It's hard for me to go to eBay and buy stuff and put it together. It would be nice if I had a way of sharing that was less cumbersome. So me having to pay you and you having to pay me, well, it, we might just be able to come up with a system for sharing. A lot of societies used to be based on sharing in ways that involved complex personal ties and deep knowledge of each other and reputation. If we can solve that problem just using smart contracts and an app, the it accomplishes all the same thing that commercial transactions do. So I'm, I'm agnostic on whether it should be commercial or not. But if we can expand in ways that many people will, will participate in, then the, I think it, it is promising in the sense that getting people out of saying the state has to regulate this, that only the state can provide these things. I don't trust markets. I think if we can expand that, then we'll start making progress on getting people to think about other people instead of state coercion. Well, you know, what comes to mind is a nonprofit corporation. Um, could there be a hybrid entity created that would satisfy all the people that would improve of such a, you know, a sharing effort like this that has its, its own entity structure. I'm not sure how the ownership would be and how the profits, et cetera, but, you know, it approximates, again, a nonprofit corporation. So it allows the sharing, um, it satisfies the concerns of people that, you know, think there's like a massive profit motive. Maybe there's a, a limit on potential profits and they go back into the kitty to approve, you know, improve services. Maybe, 
legally, if there's a structure for this, that might facilitate stuff like this happening. I, that, that's a great question. And in fact, it is a segue to another thing that I wanted to talk about that I think non, a nonprofit corporation is an ideal answer for. So suppose that I want to get a loan for a small business, or I want to be able to use an app, and I don't have any reputation on it. But I have... Uh, been renting out my apartment on Airbnb for a while. And I have a hundred successful rentals and people say, this is a great guy. So I have a reputation on Airbnb, but it's not portable to any other app. What we need is something like a social credit score. That is my reputation, which belongs to me. And maybe it's pseudonymous. So in a blockchain application, there's different levels of identity. But this is my reputation, and I can use it in getting a loan. I can use it in maybe I want to drive an Uber, or there's some other app I want to use it for. The problem with the social credit score, and I'm using that phrase to be provocative, we have social credit scores in China, and it's run by the government. I was about to say something. Well, Please but don't the, call it that. But the, I, I want to call it that. For You asked exactly the right question. Why can't it be done by a nonprofit corporation? If it's done by the state, it's going to be coercive. And we're going to keep track of political dissent. We're going to keep track of things that shouldn't be part of my reputation. But if it's a nonprofit corporation, and yes, now I'll stop calling at the social credit score. What it is, is my investment in reputation to show that I can be trusted. And this means that there's all sorts of transactions I can engage in. Some of these are commercial transactions. Maybe they're just cooperative with other people. We need a nonprofit in the United States that is there's a wall. I started to say a Chinese wall, but that would be an unfortunate phrase. So a wall between there's a, but something to prevent the information within this nonprofit. So the encryption that prevents it from being available to the government, but still preserves all the benefits of having a reputation that I can then use because other people will trust me. So I think there's a, there's a bunch of, if it's for profit, people are going to say it'll be manipulated. It's going to be like the credit company. So nonprofits are the perfect solution. I wanted to credit your suggestion. Sure, sure. Yeah, I can understand why some people would think the profit motive is what causes the problem. But I also think the lack of governance by platform users, the lack of ability to really influence the platform is also another problem. Like, you know, I've, I'm, I'm in my 40s. I've watched, I'm sure you have too. Companies, they get bigger and they become abusive. I don't know why they just do. And there's no way for users that are now depending on these platforms to say anything. And you know, I know the money that they make contributes to their power, but again, there's also no governance ability from the platform users. So now you get a system where not only is it tremendous profit, which some people don't like, uh, some people don't mind, but now you have no voice and you could be deplatformed and things happen that, you know, you have no control over and you've become dependent upon this thing. And now you're like, now what do I do? Right. And so the, the, a possible answer, if, if it's a, a blockchain app that underlies this and we have a governance structure, a consensus generating structure that's based on proof, proof of stake. And so a proof of work is cumbersome and it doesn't work for all uh, blockchain applications like in 
arguably does for Bitcoin. But if we have a proof of stake system, the stockholders also get to run the company in a way that they don't now because the management has become evil. And it's very difficult for me as a stockholder to be able to control that. But if you have a proof of stake system for consensus generation, it, it's much easier to control the actions of that nonprofit. So I think blockchain is in the consensus generating mechanisms that blockchain allows are at least a partial solution to the very real problem that you just mentioned. And I've, you know, I've, I've interviewed a lot of blockchain companies and I understand the ones that have a, you know, a monetary basis. They're, they appear to be running contrary to the government's interest, you know, Bitcoin, other cryptocurrencies. Yeah. But I've also seen, unfortunately, the companies that have these blockchain initiatives have no sense of business yeah. and no sense of, and so they, unfortunately, have had great ideas, but they're gone. I don't know where they are. They just they fall by the wayside. They're gone, and the technology is fantastic for doing what you said. I've read about proof of stake, proof of work, etc. But where are they? They need a guiding hand to get to be put in use. And we're a long way from accomplishing that. And the actually having even proof of concept is not going to be enough. We need to learn a lot about these consensus generating mechanisms. I think that's the key innovation that's going to make a difference because it's going to allow large-scale management and governance in a way that there's no other institution can accomplish. But we're far from perfecting it. We're, we're, you're right. There's, there's a few people get together. Wouldn't this be cool? They write some software. There's problems with it. They, can't, they don't really have a business plan, and they're gone in two years. But there were a bunch in the early 20th century, there were a bunch of airplane crashes for early commercial airlines, and people concluded, you know, there will never be a successful commercial airline. It's too dangerous. Well, actually, after a bunch of crashes, it started to happen. So I guess I'm optimistic that the same thing will be true here. I am too. I just wonder if it's a bite off more than you can choose situation again. You know, maybe blockchain for sharing my lawn equipment they sound ridiculous, but yeah. maybe that's what's needed. I don't know. The, 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 that's why I started with that example. I think local public goods that solve that problem with people that already more or less know each other and they have enough proximity will will learn enough about the process. So I your, your, your intuition where you immediately said, well, wait, why won't that work? I think it will. And with any luck, in 10 years, we'll look back on that and say, yeah, that's where it started. So we need you to run for mayor of a small town so that you can start this <laughs> idea and get it going. And automate I, it, I, it, it happens that I am running for North Carolina General Assembly. So I, I, I do think that running for office is something that more of the people that are interested in this should do, if only it gives you a chance to say, this is a way that I think government can do a better job as government. Very good. Very good. Um, so, you know, looking forward in your crystal ball, what do you see is actually happening over the next few years? A move towards this or going nowhere? I think it'll be like the early years of the Industrial Revolution where it not only will not go nowhere, there will be a retrenchment where the the, the concern for preserving traditional ways of doing things and traditional jobs is going to make things quite a bit worse. And so we're, we're going to make backwards progress in a way that's going to create quite a bit of poverty over the next five years. So the, the, the move to the Industrial Revolution, even though it was inevitable, was really destructive. There were riots. The cities of Europe were on fire. And I'm worried that we're going to see some of the same thing. I'm, in the short run, pessimistic, but in the 10 or 20 year term, optimistic. Okay, excellent. So what's the best way for people to 
learn more about these ideas about blockchain, about sharing, about these platforms? You know, where should they pick up your book? What's the recommendation? Well, I have a new book um, on platforms that is coming out with the Institute for Economic Affairs in London. And if somebody just sends me an email, I'm happy to send you a PDF of that. If you want to buy the book, that would be fine too. But I'm happy to send a PDF. I I think that I should reduce the transactions cost of this. So just send me an email at munger at duke.edu. That's M-U-N-G-E-R at duke.edu. And I'm, I'm happy to share what in effect is the ebook. Uh, it's called Platforms, Perils, and Promise. But if you want a physical copy of my Cambridge book. It's called Tomorrow 3.0, and it's available on Amazon. But I also write a basically weekly column for AIER, the American Institute for Economic Research, and a lot of the ideas I've written up in essays there. So if you just look for Munger and AIER, you can find quite a few of these ideas written out in thousand-word format. That's great. Um, I was just about to let you go, but I want to ask one quick question. Do you know of anyone that is forced to use or, God forbid, willingly using uh, China's social credit system and their experience with it? Any stories or any fine stories about it? There have been a couple of, of Planet Money, the NPR uh, podcast about it. What was interesting was having the social credit score turned out to be they could bolt this on to contract day- tracing for coronavirus. And so uh, many people in China are required to have on their phone an app that connects their social credit score with their movements so that you you have this sort of uh, one-size-fits-all way of where have I been? Is there some danger that I have coronavirus? Is there some danger that I'm a dissident? Uh, It's actually pretty terrifying the extent to which China so quickly moved into recognizing the potential of a cell phone app that you're required to have, that they have access to GPS, to uh, whatever the cell phone conversations you have, the texts that you send out, and to uh, who else you've been nearby. So the the there's there, a Planet Money podcast on on China's social credit score um, it is a place that I would look, and it shows both the potential and some of the extreme dangers. Where it's kind of like the movie Minority Report, where the Tom Cruise character had to live in a world where the government not only knew everything but even tried to predict. So it, uh, there's there's a dystopian aspect to the potential for this software. We're going to be lucky if we can thread the needle and avoid that. Very good. Well, Mike, it's been great having you. Really informative, and uh, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. It was great to talk to you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.